Here's Your Red Flag is intended for mature audiences only. Many, if not most, of our episodes will include topics such as psychological, emotional, and physical abuse, and detailed narcissistic and toxic behaviors. We are not professional therapists. If you are in need of professional help, please contact the appropriate authorities. Some names have been changed for anonymity purposes. The opinions expressed by the guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lisa or myself. You can find additional information about this podcast in the show notes, as well as on our website, heresyourredflag.com. And we are also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I flew up to the mirror Well, there was nothing that I seen You lie, I cried The butterfly walked in my eyes You lie, I cried The butterfly walked in my eyes Trigger warning we will be discussing a few instances of domestic violence. Please listen with care. Thank you. The National Domestic Violence Hotline states that domestic violence, also referred to as intimate partner violence, dating abuse, or relationship abuse, is a pattern of behaviors used by one partner to maintain power and control over another partner in an intimate relationship. Domestic violence doesn't discriminate. People of any race, age, gender, sexuality, religion, education level, or economic status can be a victim or perpetrator of domestic violence. That includes behaviors that physically harm, intimidate, manipulate, or control a partner, or otherwise force them to behave in ways they don't want to, including through physical violence, threats, emotional abuse, or financial control. Multiple forms of abuse are usually present at the same time in abusive situations, and it's essential to understand how these behaviors interact so you know what to look for. When we know what relationship looks like and means, we can take steps to get help for ourselves as well as better support others who are experiencing abuse. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic abuse, please visit the National Domestic Violence website at thehotline.org or see our show notes for the link. Thank you. Welcome back, podcast family. This is episode six of Here's Your Red Flag. In episodes one through five, I detail my childhood and second marriage. And so episode six will be wonderful because you won't hear me drone on about my experiences, but we'll get to hear about nuts and bolts of narcissism from Tony. Tony, how are you? I'm doing good. Yes. I'm very excited about moving on. I know you are very excited about moving on. Very. I know that it's going to be beneficial for others if they haven't listened to it, to go back and listen to what you've prevailed over with both in your childhood and gaining an understanding of that, as well as that second marriage that was completely destructive and going nowhere good. So you're a complete example of somebody who can learn, become educated, and find your way to much more prosperous life in the sense of, you know, you're healing, you're on a path to only goodness and a hopeful future. Those of us that have listened to it really appreciate what you've shared. Well, thank you so much. So let's get to it. 
We have really been looking forward to covering the nuts and bolts of narcissism. While doing the research for this, we were really overwhelmed by all that is out there. You know, we have researched ourselves along the way. And when I sat down to really start getting into this and preparing for this episode, I was overwhelmed. There's so much out there, which gives me a lot of hope because if anybody wants to learn about this and educate themselves, it's there, it's out there. And maybe we'll help a little bit by this episode. This may turn into two episodes. We'll see how, how long we go, but I don't think anybody will balk at that. Hopefully they'll want to drink it in as much as we like to drink it all in. So basically if we tried to explain every narcissistic buzzword or concept, we'd probably be able to do an entire podcast season on everything that's out there. We think we've gathered the most important ones and it should be a nice primer for those who may be just beginning this toxic relationship education or those who would like a refresher. We think that any and everyone will benefit from this episode, even if you've never experienced a lot of toxicity or toxic relationships or been around narcissists. I think that there's something for everyone here. At least it's good to learn about it because if you haven't experienced it, you probably have people in your life that have, and maybe you can help them with what you've learned. So we thank everyone for joining us today, and we're so happy that you're on this journey with us. We're going to start by laying a little bit of foundation of narcissism before we get into the buzzwords. Lisa, do you want to start us off? Yes. I think it's important for everyone to know that narcissists have four, we'll just say narcissists and toxic people, have four needs. And these needs are what really control their behavior. And those needs are power, control, manipulation, and admiration. And without getting too far off into counseling theory, it's important to, to realize that our actions are driven by our thoughts and not necessarily our feelings. So I could feel sad, but that wouldn't necessarily cause me to act out in a certain way, or I could feel angry. That feeling doesn't cause me to do anything. It's my thoughts about the anger or the thoughts about the sadness that cause me to act a certain way. And so the same is true with toxic people in our lives. It's, it's their thoughts that are driving their behavior. So, and I say that because so often, you know, we've talked about number two and his need for power control, manipulation, and admiration. And the reason he does that, the reason he behaves in a controlling way is because he believes I'm less than him. There's not a sense of mutual respect. There's not a sense of a, a give and take in the relationship. There's just not. He, he doesn't see you as equal. Not at all. And so neither did, you know, my parents and we could go on and on about that. But just his thought that that he is above everyone else is what's driving that controlling behavior. And I just, I think that's important for people to know that we can feel a certain way, but our thoughts are what's in con ultimately in control of our behavior. Very interesting. So the next thing we're going to talk about is the three E's, and that's the letter E of narcissists. The first E is empathy. They lack it. If they have any, it's fleeting and it's surface level. 
And it relates and points back to them in some fashion. If you think, oh no, this person's not a narcissist because he was feeling sad, just have that be a little red flag that comes up for you and check it and watch because they don't have empathy. And if they do, it only relates back to them. What did you want to say about that? Yeah, I would say if they demonstrate any empathy at all, it's because they have watched it in others and Mm. they mimic that behavior. Oh, wow. Excellent. The second E of narcissists is entitlement. They feel entitled to any and everything. And the third E is exploitation. They have no compunction about using any and everyone for their own needs and pleasure. These are three very important E's that you might want to jot down. I know I did. The lack of empathy Mm. pertains to any type of narcissist. We may get into different Mm. types of narcissists, but there's the grandiose narcissist that, you know, is more outward in their egotism, I guess, Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. showy, you know, Mm -hmm. and the things that they have and acquire luxury items and things like that. But the others, the entitlement and the exploitation, those can be a little bit more covert and Mm -hmm. harder to spot. Yeah, good good to know about and be able to check. Mm -hmm. And over a period of time, right? We can all lack empathy, maybe because we don't really understand the situation. We can all feel, have this sense of entitlement or pridefulness, and we can all unknowingly, you know, accidentally exploit others. So it's all on a, all on a scale, but it's important to notice patterns of behavior in people, not just a one-off. Not just a one-off. Exactly. That's a really good point. So I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're so humble. <laughs> it's my favorite thing about you. <laughs> Am I a narcissist? No, just kidding. <laughs> no. <laughs> if, you, if you're asking, you're not. Okay, so my favorite visualization of a narcissist is visualize a perpetual temper tantrum throwing four-year-old in a playroom. He or she views all the toys as theirs and they do with them whatever they please, throw them around, kick them, you know, stomp on them. And they see no problem with that. The toys are theirs and they can make a mess and pull the wheels off the Tonka truck or whatever. And a narcissist also views people as just objects on a shelf. You know, think of a trinket that you have on the shelf. It just shows that they don't view other human beings as having their own needs, desires, or rights. You can think about the narcissist and toxic people in your life, past and present, and view them through this lens. And it really puts it in perspective that if this is how they can view you, it just shows how unimportant you are to them. And it really is just all about them. You are just their plaything. You are theirs to do with as they like. And it's also really important to keep this in the front of your mind. Narcissists cannot change no matter what you do, period. You are just spinning your wheels and wasting the best years of your life, trying to obtain the unattainable. Thinking that you have any chance of bringing about change in them is futile. What do you think, Lise? I think that is part of the reason it was so painful for me to decide to in my relationship with my father Mm. or maybe not in my relationship, but I just refused to engage with him anymore. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't heard that, I think that's probably in episode one, the story about that. But, you know, it is so painful. Girls need their daddies, but my daddy is not well. And that's very hard to come to that level of acceptance 
that they're not going to change, especially when we are working so hard to make the relationship better, to better ourselves, to understand people and to make those connections with people. It's so hard when other people don't reciprocate that. But once we do come to that level of acceptance, okay, this is, you know, I wanted, I use this illustration with my kids all the time that I wanted an apple for a father and I got an orange. There is no way that the orange is going to become an apple. It's just not possible. And there are a lot more nuances to it than that. And it's more complicated, but they're just not going to change. And Mm -hmm. what do we do with that knowledge? Do we stay stuck in the relationship or do we accept it and move forward? Staying stuck can be dangerous for our, our physical health, emotional health, spiritual and financial health. So staying stuck while it prevents you know, the maybe inevitable breakup of a relationship or ending of a relationship, it just prolongs also our, our own pain. Yes, that's very true. That's a really good point is once you realize it, that I can't change this person, he's an orange and I wanted an apple, you move on. And a lot of times moving on either is processing with someone else as we've talked about you know, or possibly if it's, if it's your father or mother or someone, you know, that's been in your life a long time and you have these certain expectations, my mom should, or my dad should act like this. It's, it's probably a good idea to seek professional help Mm -hmm. to really process that Mm -hmm. from the standpoint of getting a professional's help with that so that you can learn how to go forward Mm -hmm. and have mental health. Mm -hmm. For the rest of your life. One thing I would add is I don't want listeners or ourselves to view this information as the right to kind of wield a machete in in our lives and cut down all these relationships that have less than perfect people in them. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. And for a long time, like two decades. I was learning how to exist with my dad, how to be in relationship with him, and nothing I tried would work. And anything I tried just caused more and more and more pain. Same in marriage number two. So, you know, this information, I I don't want listeners to just go through their list of contacts in their phone and say, oh, she's this and he's that and she, and like delete contacts and in relationships. That's not it at all. Our first step in true freedom in living this life on earth is number one, knowing ourselves, in my opinion, knowing God and knowing who we are according to him, and also being able to live with other humans peacefully. Mm. And we can do that. We can still live this life and be in relationships with people who are unhealthy because we all are unhealthy to some degree. So this isn't just a a black and white issue, just because I happen to choose not to engage with my father and I happen to choose to divorce number two doesn't mean that I think we should rid our lives of these people. I think we need to learn to live with them when at all possible. That's an excellent point. There are people that we can't avoid. You know, we have coworkers, we have people that are just inevitable that are going to be in the paths of our lives people that we, you know, see at social functions or church or what have you. 
And yeah, you, you don't want to just delete people out of your life. At the end of our list of the nuts and bolts is coming out of the relationship. And there are several strategies that a person can use very tactfully so that you're not so easily telling them to go jump in the lake. And those have worked beautifully for you and I, I know um, when we've had to deal with people that we know, we, you know, I've mentioned there's a lady down the street at the store that I have to deal with every once in a while. And when I go into the store, I prepare myself that this, this lady that owns the shop is going to be a narcissistic ninny. And I am now prepared. And I know the strategy of gray rock. I don't walk in expecting her to treat me like she likes me because she's incapable of that. She's shown me who she is and I believe her. And having this education, knowing these strategies makes it very tolerable around certain of these people. There are some that we need to get out of our lives that are bad for our mental health. For instance, number two, being in, a, in an abusive marriage like that, you know, that, that's a no brainer. But yeah, it's, there are some that we are just not going to be able to avoid. Mm-hmm. So I think I beat that dead horse a little bit more. No, I love it. I'm beat away. <laughs> I love it. Nothing yeah. against horses. We love horses. <laughs> and just knowing your tribe, I think the more I know about this mm. information, how to recognize and coexist with toxic people just makes me appreciate my tribe even more. And you kind of figure out who your safe people are. And, and cling to those. And then the others, you just wish them a very happy day and move on. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I know who your tribe is. And sometimes there's people that sneak into your tribe and it's, it's important to remember that quote that we love so much that I believe Maya Angelou originated when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Yes. That is another good tattoo. I don't have any tattoos, but that would be a good one if somebody likes to tattoo things on their body. Yes. Yes, for sure. Believe them the first time and mm-hmm. you know, really being aware of people's actions versus their words is important. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Observing how they treat others is important too. Oh, that's a really good one. Absolutely. Watch how people treat servers and, you know, those that maybe they deem below them. That's a big red flag. It is. Wait staff, grocery clerks, Uber drivers, mailman, you name it. Yep. It doesn't matter the, the difference. So if they're mean to you, but nice to them or mean to them and nice to you, either way is a huge red flag. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Huge. Very true. So I think you're going to now give us a little primer on the cycle of abuse. Yes. So the cycle of abuse is categorized into four different stages, but it can be messy, I suppose. And it doesn't always follow a specific timeline or a specific, it does follow a specific order, but you don't stay in any one stage for any given period of time. So you can go through the cycle of abuse I did with number two in a weekend, or you could stay in a certain stage for a month. So it varies from situation to situation, but it begins with tension. So the first stage is tension. And that's when the, we'll just say the abuser will be experiencing some sort of external stress that we all experience, like uh, work stress, family stress, anything financial. So rather than deal with that stress in a healthy way, then 
they end up taking it out on us. And the result of that is that we're walking on eggshells. So we can, we can sense there's this tension. And so we try to do this little tap dance of like I did, I could sense there's tension with number two on a Thursday. I know he'll be home from traveling all week on Friday. And so I make the house spotlessly clean. There's fresh baked bread. There's, you know, everything is perfect and I'm dressed perfect. Hair is perfect. Everything's perfect to try to avoid this inevitable eruption that's going to happen. That's not even my fault. So that's the tension phase, walking on eggshells. Then there's going to be some triggering event that is usually very, very minor. This is when the abuser kind of lets it all out and there's an eruption. So this is the name calling, threatening. It could even be things like silent treatment, uh, which number two was an expert in for days, weeks at a time. And then there's this reconciliation phase. And no matter how many apologies I gave to my father or to number two, it didn't matter. So the reconciliation phase happens on their timeline. That's really important to know that there's nothing that we can do to accelerate the reconciliation, though that's what we so strongly desire is to get back in their good graces, to have the relationship back on an even keel and feel loved again. There's nothing we can do to to make that happen. So it's on their timeline. So when they decide to do it, it's like a switch. It's not gradual. It happens so quickly. And all of a sudden, it was like the sunshade incident I talked about in a previous episode. We stopped at a rest stop to use the restroom. We get back in the truck and he's a completely different person. So it just happens like that. And meanwhile, we're still reeling in the, oh my gosh, what did I do? How can I make it better kind of mindset? So in this stage, the reconciliation stage, this is where we start to feel good again. All of those good hormones, the dopamine and the oxytocin, we feel so good. It's like the honeymoon phase again. So it could be things as simple as, first of all, probably never an apology. We'll just throw that out there. Never an apology, but maybe just a sweet kiss or a compliment. You look nice today if it's, you know, a kind of non-romantic type of relationship or a phone call after a long period of silence. So it could be anything as little as that, but it could also be an overabundance of that, which is called love bombing that we'll talk about in a minute. And then finally, there is this calm period. And again, it doesn't last for any particular amount of time. It could last for a couple of hours and then something else happens to start the cycle all over again. But there is a period of calm after the honeymoon phase and you think, okay, this is good. This is, I can breathe. This is easy. And that bonds us to them even more because that's what we want more than anything is just calm and mutual respect. And this really bonds us to them until there's a little triggering thing, like this rising tension starts again and the cycle starts all over again. Excellent. I was jotting down something that hit me that when you were talking about the reconciliation stage and they're angry at you, you knew that they were angry about something else. You knew it wasn't going to be you. And then that 
you know, if you've been in the cycle enough, enough times, you know, that the cycle is going to happen to you, whatever it is that they get angry at you and you're in that, you're in the incident stage Mm -hmm. during that time, your, your wheels are spinning. Like, what can I do? And you just can't help yourself to try to figure out how do I get us out of this? And, you know, and then you said that a a switch is flipped. It's not a gradual, then all of a sudden, okay, we're good. And we move into the reconciliation stage. What's frustrating about this for a, I'm going to just say normal person, a non-abuser, a non-narcissistic person. What's frustrating about this, there's no learning on our part. There's nothing to say, okay, next time I won't wear my hair like that. Next time I won't say, hi, honey. Next time I'll be sure to give them a kit, you know, whatever. There's no, there's nothing for you to learn from this. That's why this is such just an agonizing type of relationship to be in with somebody because a lot of people are forward thinking, learning people. That's what humans are. And I think most animals, they, you know, stimulus response at least, and there's no stimulus to respond to that is ever anything that you can count on. And that is agonizing and frustrating. And every time you're going to be around somebody like this, and you know, something's going to set them off. There's no stimulus that you know, that is going to show you, oh, this, this stimulus is here. So I need to do that. There's none of that. It's, it is a very, very frustrating type of situation to be in. It's a moving target always. That's and a great description. That creates what's called cognitive dissonance. Mm. Just in simplest terms, we could just say that it creates a lot of confusion for us. For example, one time I backed his car out of the garage and I scraped the door in doing so. And his car was and still is probably his prized possession. And when I I was so scared to call him and tell him that I had scratched the door. And when I called him, he was so sweet and understanding and air quotes, empathetic. And I remember him saying, oh, I know you feel so bad about it. It is not no big deal. We'll get it fixed and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, fast forward a couple of days and we had run out of car washing soap and this caused a whole episode of abuse. You know, how could you let this go dry. Don't you know, we always need this on the weekends. How could you be so stupid? And didn't you set this up on a reoccurring order like I told you to, which he never told me to do. So just that mismatch of I've damaged the car. No big deal. We ran out of soap. It's the end of the world. And that creates this constant confusion within us, which I think is what you were speaking to. Just the moving target, the constant confusion, constant walking on eggshells, you never know what's going to make it better and you never know what's going to cause it. But I will say I was writing something down when you were talking to that we need to remember that we are not the cause of their behavior. And because we're not the cause of it, we cannot fix it mm. and we can't make it better. Right. Again, they cannot change. They cannot change. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for that wonderful well, I would say encapsulation of the cycle of abuse. That was excellent, Lisa, mm-hmm. as always. Mm-hmm. So I am going to cover the cycle of narcissism, which is different than the cycle of abuse. 
And again, you know, a narcissist could be anyone from a family member to a coworker to someone we see in a store or what have you. So the four parts of the cycle of narcissism is idealize, devalue, discard, and hoovering. So a little brief overview of each stage. Idealize is when the narcissist forms a powerful bond by creating a manufactured soulmate. They're playing the perfect match and they have many tricks in their bags to accomplish this. And it starts by targeting just the right person. Do you want to say anything about that? Yes. So in the first stage of a relationship with a narcissist, you will feel very heard and Mm. understood and they will look you right in the eye like straight into your soul and they will ask lots of questions and you're thinking wow they are really interested in me they get me they get me and understand me and like like no one ever has yes right yes Mm -hmm. and at first the questions are very kind of benign you know it's like like a, a swimming pool you're just kind of stepping into the water a little bit with the questions and then they get deeper over time and you just feel yourself so willingly vulnerable Mm. and they they're very gentle and compassionate with our responses and it seems like they're going to really hold them sacred to them and so we're bonded in that Mm. in that idealization phase and they use what we share against us later which we'll talk about And like you said, we're bonded, we're bonded quickly. And that's when, and we're just totally going to do an episode on the, the neurochemicals that start in this early phase. This is the start of the, of using the great drug. And it is, it is a drug like no other, and it's completely addictive. You absolutely, this is where all the warm, fuzzy, wonderful feelings start flowing over you because this person gets you like you've always wanted to be gotten. When you start any kind of relationship, you meet new people, this sort of thing happens, but maybe at a slower pace and not as intense, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, there's such an intense attraction, probably a physical attraction, but also this idea that this person gets me. This person really likes attractive. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So after you're in their web under their spell pretty quickly and maybe sometimes you know i think that there's there's no timeline for how long the idealization stage ha- uh, lasts but you know some people have reported that they dated for a year before and then maybe they got married and the devalue the devaluing started other people for me in my early 20s i had a um, narcissistic relationship and it was 2 weeks And at the two week mark, that's when the devaluing started. And so onto the description of that is once they, they feel like they have you in their clutches, once you're, you're their target person, once you're hooked, they start to withdraw and they become cold and aloof and distance. They triangulate with others. We are going to talk about triangulation later. It is the most demoralizing feeling to have when for however long you've been just idealized and made to feel on a pedestal. What do you think, Lisa? With with the devaluing, oftentimes there's no precipitating event. Mm. It's not that you burnt the cake 
or you forgot to pick them up from work or you bought the wrong paint color. You know, there's nothing that, and these are just ordinary mistakes, by the way, that people mm-hmm. make that mm-hmm. don't deserve abuse in, in return, but mm-hmm. there's no precipitating event. And so that's what is so confusing is mm-hmm. we are their soulmate. We are their best friend. We have heard, I love you so quickly. And we're just the best thing ever. And so we're feeling really good and warm and fuzzy in the relationship. And then all of a sudden, there's something that happens that is beyond explanation. And again, it goes back to it's nothing that we caused, so we can't fix it. Yeah, it's just so confusing. Yes, it is. Okay, so the next stage in the cycle of narcissism is discard. And that's where the narcissist drops the victim and moves on to someone else. And oftentimes they'll wave the other person in front of your face if it's happening to you. And as, as you were talking, something came to mind when my daughter was in middle school, a lot of, and maybe even elementary school, you know, they come home and say, oh, so-and-so is my new best friend. And they're just best friends, best friends, best friends for, you know, two or three or four days or a week or something like that. And then they come home, you know, sometime after, well, she now likes so-and-so more than me. And they just run around playing together and, you know, it hurts my feelings. And now she likes her more than me or doesn't like me anymore. And it's, it's that juvenile and think that we'll, we'll talk. Well, we did talk about how a narcissist is a perpetual four-year-old. That's what this is. The little kids on the playground eventually grow up, hopefully, and don't need to do that stuff anymore. It's just that immature. It is that immature. And it can also be quite painful. And Mm. in, in my case with number two, well, it's always painful. With number two, there wasn't any evidence of infidelity on his part, but he would substitute another woman with one of his children and would use her as a replacement for me. And even one time on Christmas Eve, he and I and one of his children were in the kitchen and he asked me if I would share something with her that I had shared with him in confidence and in private. And I looked at him and I said, no. I don't think so. And he said, you can tell her she's like my wife. Do you remember that? Yes. And I just looked at him and I, I just was just in, in disbelief. And he goes, yeah, she, she's like my wife. I tell her everything. That was so painful and so hurtful because I had shared with him, you know, like husbands and wives do, shared something with him that i wanted to process only with him mm-hmm. and she didn't need in on that it was an adult matter so he would discard me for her and I believe really convinced me to enroll in a in a specific graduate program so that that would keep me on the weekends because all the assignments were due on Sundays that would keep me on the weekends out of his hair then he could then focus on his time with her and I Looking back on it, I I do feel like he used her as a replacement for me. And that was so unhealthy for her, especially Very. because now he's discarded her. Oh, that's true. He has no other use for her. Mm-hmm. He used her to dangle in front of you. Yes. And now that I'm out of the picture, he has no use for her. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Wow, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Have I mentioned he sucks? I think I have. Okay. I'm not sure. Anyway. <laughs> What's his name? <laughs> <laughs> Number two. Number two. <laughs> okay. And so the fourth and final of the cycle of narcissism is hoovering. And we will, that is definitely a nuts and bolts term that we're going to talk about further down, but that is simply stating that the narcissist attempts to win you back and win your trust back by feigning sincerity, remorse, and a desire for change. So once they see, okay, I discarded her and oh, dang, she's actually taking this seriously. She's going away. I feel her slipping away. The hoovering starts, the sucking them back in. Okay. So that is the cycle of narcissism. And we have one more little piece of education before we get into the nuts and bolts. And Lisa is going to talk about the cluster B personality disorders, which is an important piece to know. Mm -hmm. So medical health professionals group personality disorders into three clusters. According to the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, we call it the DSM-5, there are four cluster B personality disorders, including narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and histrionic personality disorder. Often an individual with one personality disorder will exhibit traits of one or more disorders. So I wanted to ask you if this is true. I read it recently that every histrionic is a narcissist, but not every narcissist is histrionic. Would you say that pretty much everyone in the cluster B personality disorders are narcissistic? Yes, I would agree with that. Everyone in the cluster B personality disorder would have some element of narcissism. And we could describe it like this, that every dog is a mammal, but not every mammal is a dog. Oh, that's good. Mm -hmm. And I do want to insert here that Lisa is in the final semesters of completing her master's in counseling. We are very lucky, all of us listeners, to have her as, I would say, an expert. (laughs) So that's why I like to defer to you all the time, Lisa, and see what your schooling can tell us. It's very interesting. And in one of my courses right now, we're having to go through this DSM-5 and learn about all the various disorders. And they are very fascinating. So two things with the DSM-5 is just as, you know, with anything, be careful what what you read because it's easy to say, oh my gosh, I have, I do that or I do that. So it's very easy to kind of self-diagnose when we shouldn't mm-hmm. and be be real careful about that. And the second thing is in the DSM-5, which is put together by hundreds of experts in the field with doctorate degrees, and they all concur and research has shown that these cluster B personality disorders, some of them can lessen with the symptoms can lessen with therapy and sometimes medication if they have an, a comorbid disorder like anxiety or depression, which most of them do, but they don't change. hmm They really don't. And to find a narcissist or any of the cluster B personalities in therapy would actually be a rarity Mm. because they don't seek it out. And they often go only as a result of a marriage partner providing an ultimatum or if a court orders it. Those are really the only two reasons you would ever find anyone with a cluster B personality disorder 
in therapy. And the therapists that I see and other therapists that I've listened to online in podcasts, pretty much all of them have said once they spot it, they terminate the relationship because they they know they will be manipulated and controlled and wow. nothing will come of it. And so I, I find that to be really heartwarming because counselors do need to follow code of ethics. And I just love hearing that counselors will terminate that client counselor relationship rather than just take the copayment, you know, take mm -hmm. the money. Right. So that's interesting. That is very interesting. So now that we've laid a little bit of foundation, we'll go through finally the nuts and bolts of narcissism and toxic relationships. These are some things that Lisa and I have garnered from several articles, and we're going to list the article names and their links in our show notes for this episode. And we were trying to figure out how to categorize them because most of the lists just sort of have them all smattered on a, on a paper. Okay. When we're in relationships with narcissists, those relationships take on a particular and predictable cycle. And the cycle includes idealization, devaluing, discarding, and hoovering. So for our nuts and bolts terms, we've tried to group them based on those different stages of the relationship cycle. Perfectly said. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Even if you tried, <laughs> which I tried a it's few so times. Hard. It's so hard. <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you, Lisa. Beautifully said. We will insert some instances we've encountered and lived through to better illustrate the concepts for our listeners when possible. Again, we're covering some of the better known concepts and we're eager to hear from listeners about their own experiences. You can connect with us by messaging us either through email, which you can find on our website or our social media sites. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So if you want to private message us, we would love to hear from you and detail your unique story, maybe in a future episode. Okay, so let's get to the most common narcissistic buzzwords, phrases, and concepts, starting with the buzzwords associated with the idealization stage. Remember that idealization is that early stage of a relationship where the narcissist holds us in the highest regard. This is when we are the golden child or the perfect wife or perfect potential mate. I've never met anyone like you is a common phrase. I've never been as close to anyone before would be another common phrase. And when narcissists identify a potential mate, they are initially seen as perfect. And when the false promise of perfection begins to break down, they can't see their mate realistically as having a mix of good and flawed qualities. So instead, they follow that with punishment that's kind of driven by this disillusionment. And this idealization doesn't happen just at the beginning of the relationship. It happens again after as part of the hoovering. Very good. The next buzzword that we're covering is self-esteem, which I think many of us are familiar with that word. So in regards to what we're talking about, self-esteem is the overall judgment that one holds about their own self-worth, which would include pride in oneself and self-respect, self-assurance in myself and past toxic relationships. And from what I've studied in the research, a victim of a narcissistic person generally has a vulnerability or a lack of defense in their self-esteem. What do you think, Lisa? Yeah, for sure. 
There's something in us that if we don't consciously think I deserve this bad treatment, we we accept it, we make excuses for it. And I think that a person who was primarily strong, had firm boundaries, knew who they were, knew their worth, would in the very first instance of name calling or silence or any of that just snap too so quickly. And I don't want to say fight against it, but, you know, question it, really question it. But those, you know, we've kind of been groomed, so to speak, by our previous experiences or even childhood to have this low self-esteem and that then can have the tendency to prime us to be what's called codependent. One thing that just came to mind is once we start educating ourselves, as we're all doing through this podcast and others and other information that's out there is, you know, recognizing red flags, getting an education on toxic people, toxic relationships, the characteristics of narcissists, etc. That's when our self-esteem is bolstered and given a boost. And the thing about self-esteem is it's not static, it's dynamic. And we can give it a vaccination and it can become more immune to the ability of a narcissist or a toxic person invading our life. But again, that self-esteem is only bolstered when we come to that realization that I am a good, valuable person. I value myself when, when you, that value comes from within, then that's where that immunity can start to develop within your self-esteem and you can become more immune because you're educated and you're more on the lookout and ready to defend yourself against allowing these people to come beyond your boundaries, which we will also be talking about shortly. Yeah. And when we rely on others to dictate what we think about ourselves, that makes us codependent. Mm. If it's my behavior, that if I clean the house and I get a positive reward from that, from number two, then I think better of myself. If we've had a horrible weekend of name calling and emotional or physical abuse, then I think I deserve that or I should have done X, Y, Z. I'm codependent because I'm relying on him to dictate what I think about myself rather than coming at it. You know, it's the tail wagging the dog rather than this is who I am. I'm a strong, caring, compassionate person in my eyes and in the eyes of God. And rather than that coming first, and then how does this person fit in with my view of myself? I'm constantly morphing who I am to uh, to please the other. I'm I'm even picking up hobbies that I didn't even really enjoy just to please them. I am eating foods that I don't want to eat to please them. I'm it's and I'm not talking about basic give and take in a relationship. I'm not talking about compromise. I'm talking about something much, much bigger than that. So this codependency is very common when people when we have a, a perfectionistic nature and we we want others to accept us and we want to do a good job. And I think that's a really good quality to have, but it can be really exploited by these toxic people. Definitely. And will you talk a little bit about external locus of control? That's one of the buzzwords I forgot to put in here. And I think that fits perfectly with codependence. So there's an internal locus of control and an external locus of control. And so our internal locus of control is based on what we value. And so we make decisions then for, based on our values. 
in our morals versus having an external locus of control. All of our decisions and our thoughts are dictated by something outside of ourselves. And oftentimes it is that toxic person who has become so powerful in our lives and usually someone we really look up to. You know, they think so highly of themselves. So we end up putting them on that pedestal too. So we're constantly looking or driven by that external locus of control. Mm -hmm. That's what the abuser looks for is a codependent type person who has an external locus of control, who doesn't have a strong sense of self and doesn't operate from their own, you know, their self-esteem is low. Therefore, they don't have a developed sense of their values per se, and they're ready to be dictated to. Mm -hmm. People pleasers is how a lot of people, people pleasers Mm -hmm. who haven't learned the boundaries, Mm -hmm. which is the next word. Yes. That's so funny how that works out. Mm -hmm. So yes, boundaries are hugely important in relationships of all sorts. Boundaries are a code of conduct. They're an unwritten set of rules, which we can to be reasonable behavior from those around us and our response when someone steps over the line someone who falls prey to a narcissist or a toxic person discards their boundaries basically they sell it to the demanding needs of the narcissistic person and we all have boundaries you know little kids that don't want to go to bed at night no you you have a bedtime you need to go to bed boundaries are taught and learned early on hopefully i think narcissists are, as we said, they feel entitled to any and everything and anyone, and they definitely feel entitled to destroying other people's boundaries. There's an excellent book by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend called Boundaries, and they're both uh, psychologists, but it's written very simply and very understandably. And one thing that they talk a lot about is that boundaries are not rules that we place on others. Boundaries are criteria for the behavior that we will accept from others and behavior that we will not accept from others. So boundaries are for ourselves and we don't go around telling people what our boundaries are. But it's important to know that codependents, people pleasers, love addicted people who end up in relationships with narcissists have, like you said, little to no boundaries. We just allow people in and out and we're in that constant seeking of approval and acceptance. And so we have very uh, weak boundaries. So it's important to know before you get into a relationship with anyone, what your boundaries are and write them down, have them somewhere tangible and really own them and don't have a boundary for yourself that you think you should have. You really need to do the work of knowing your values and which you help me do through some of our coaching sessions where you coached Mm -hmm. me, but knowing your values, knowing your goals and really outlining what you will and won't tolerate. Because once you get into that relationship or you start a relationship, especially with a toxic person and they are so charming, then those chemicals and that chemistry, that attraction takes hold and it's like quicksand and you pretty much it's too late at that point. If you don't know what your boundaries are, it's too late. That's excellent. Excellently said. Yeah. You know, you say it's like quicksand. It's also like becoming a drug addict. If you, 
you know, you can see people that literally do drugs and they had goals, you know, maybe had goals set for themselves to go to college, become, you know, this or that profession. And they get overtaken by cocaine or heroin or meth or whatever the drug of choice is for them. And their whole future evaporates. And the same thing can happen when you fall into a narcissistic relationship. You can just sell out your whole future because your boundaries weren't firmly established, which I, again, want to echo what you said. That's if you don't know what your boundaries are, you start with figuring out what your values are and what your goals are. And I think that will help you lay those stakes down and build your fence, build your boundaries based on what your future looks like. If you find that you are selling out your future just to stay in a relationship with this person, when your whole life, your goal was to become XYZ and all of a sudden, well, nope, never mind. You know, I can't do that because then I'll lose this guy. I'll lose this gal. There's your red There's flag. Your red flag. Right there. It's huge. Yeah. So boundaries are huge and they start with, as we said, knowing, learning, doing the work on what your values and goals are. So there's another fantastic author and we'll link all of the resources that we mentioned. We'll make sure to link everything in the show notes, but there's a fantastic woman who has a huge role in my healing and understanding. And her name is Leslie Vernick. She actually has a podcast now, but she has several great books out there, but she does some great talks on boundaries as well. And she uses this illustration that I think is just wonderful. And that is, do you leave your home and your car unlocked 24 seven? And the answer is no. And so if you ask, well, why, why do you, why do you have locks on your home? You say, well, because there's, there's valuables inside. My, my kids are here, my jewels or what have you, but there's valuables inside and people don't have a right to just come in and eat from my fridge or take from my pantry as they wish. And so that the same is true when we don't have boundaries. It's like we're just letting people in to, to take the valuables, to take the insignificant things. And so we want to have firm boundaries and they protect us. Again, I just want to emphasize that. And having boundaries is not being selfish. Just like having locks on your doors is not being selfish. Your neighbor will not ring your doorbell and say, you're being so selfish because you've locked me out. No, that's a right. And so we have rights as humans to say what we like and don't like, to allow people in or not allow people in, just like you have the right to not open your door if someone rings your doorbell. And I'll never forget years ago when someone kept calling me and I didn't want to talk to the person and you said, don't answer your phone. And that was just such a light bulb moment to me. And we didn't know the word boundaries then. This was probably, yeah. I don't know, 12, 15 years ago. Yeah. It was so, and that just shows how weak my boundaries were, y'all, mm. that if you called, I would answer. Mm -hmm. I had, it had, that was a foreign concept to me to, I don't want to talk to that person, so I'm not going to answer. Because if I didn't answer, then I would have this fear that I'm going to get in trouble and they're going to be mad. And oh my gosh, so freeing, so freeing. Don't answer the phone. <laughs> I like how you say we, ha we all have the right. Yes. We have the right to have boundaries. Yes. We have the right to say who does and doesn't have access to us at the times, 
you know, even at certain times of day, I, you know, I'll text you and your notification, your, you know, whatever that notification is called is on. And I think, well, she'll read it when she, you know, looks at her phone next. And I don't take offense to that. That's a boundary for you. You're studying, you're grading papers and I turn it on for my naps, Yes, <laughs> you know, and it's a boundary. I don't have to answer the phone when it's time for me to take a rest or have a conversation with my daughter or my husband who might be sitting there. I'll turn, I'll turn that, that silent thing on. And that's a boundary. I don't have to answer the phone. I don't have to look at the phone every time a text or, you know, some Instagram notification comes on. I don't have to do that. I'm not, I'm not a slave. I'm not beholden to other people. And I get to say who I let in and who I don't let in. I love that. And I love that word that you used access. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our, our lives are, are precious and, absolutely. you know, coming out of, I'm what, 48 now, finally learning all of this. And it's just so freeing to, to be able to have the power to say, this is my tribe. This is who I want to let in. And this is who I'm going to keep at arm's distance. Still be nice. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. they don't have access to me. And even if that means they ask, what'd you do this weekend? I don't have to tell them. I mean, right. <laughs> just the freedom. And I know it sounds so simple, but it's very new learning for me. And it's just been beautiful. Mm. Just really been beautiful. I love that for you. Thank you. I love it for me too. If you ask me, I will always tell you with all the details. <laughs> I love all the details. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Whatever you want to tell me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. So it's hard uh, too. you know, what goes on, what goes hand in hand with people pleasing is that concept of kind of wearing your feelings on your sleeve and being very open to telling people. And so that's something that I've had to learn. A muscle that I've had to really build mm-hmm. is not everybody really needs the full story. That's right. And a lot of people actually don't even really want it. They're just being polite. And mm-hmm. or starting a conversation, how was your weekend? They don't really care or need to know all the things. So that restraint is something that I'm having to teach myself. Yeah. Well, you're doing a good job. The next one that you get to talk about is, I think, everybody's favorite mm-hmm. narcissistic playbook tactic. It's definitely a term that a lot of people have heard, but it's love bombing. And according to Wikipedia, the term love bombing was coined by members of Sun Moon's Unification Church of the United States in the 70s. New members of the group were showered with displays of warmth and attention. The church members say that love bombing was intended to be an expression of genuine friendship and concern. However, critics of the practice saw it as a form of psychological manipulation used by cults in order to solidify the new member's devotion to the group. In modern terms, the term love bombing is now used to describe narcissists over-the-top courtship tactics when they are chasing someone that they are trying to seduce or make fall in love with them. It is wildly romantic behavior that includes constant praise, promises of undying love, thoughtful little gifts, late-night texts, and anything and everything that the narcissist thinks will secure the love of the person he or she has chosen. This intense, positive attention is often accompanied by pressure for a quick commitment. But unfortunately, once the narcissist actually secures the person's love, 
the love bombing generally stops and is eventually replaced by devaluation or indifference. This is where I would say what I spoke to earlier. At the initial stage of a relationship, the narcissist is so into you. And the reason they're so into you and the reason they ask a lot of questions and feign interest in us is to gain access to all of those things that matter and all of those things that cause us to tick. And here is where they use those to a degree. So if you're particularly spiritual, then they'll invite you to church or send you a book or tell you they're praying for you. If you're particularly interested into, you know, you name it, they will feign interest in that as well, but they will also use those to lure you in. This is that stage. This is the stage where all the chemicals just start flowing and the addiction starts Mm -hmm. with the person. Yeah. Like a Venus flytrap. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah. So once the love bombing occurs, then the target of that love bombing is then called a narcissistic supply. Can you tell us about narcissistic supply? Yes. And this was so mind-blowing when you and I first discovered this. So Wikipedia says that the the term was coined in 1938 to describe the various ways that we use other people to prop up our self-esteem. The modern meaning of the term narcissistic supply or supply for short describes anything and anyone that narcissists use to regulate their self-esteem. And the purpose of narcissistic supply is to enhance the narcissist's sense of being special. People with the narcissistic personality disorder depend emotionally on others to sustain their sense of identity and to regulate their self-esteem. They get their narcissistic supply either by idealizing and emulating others or by devaluing and asserting their superiority over others. Anyone they can manipulate, a partner, a child, a friend, a work colleague is a potential source of supply. Without suppliers, narcissists are just empty husks. They're just an empty vessel. If a source of supply pulls away, they may attempt to hoover them back and or look for other sources. Yeah, I would just add another illustration because I guess I'm a visual person, but I heard it described this, this way that to a narcissist, we are like an air hose. They need our attention and our admiration and our praise to mm. provide that, that air for them. And then when they devalue us or discard us by stepping on the air hose, right, they do it, not us. There's a kink in that hose. And so just like you just said, in order to gain their air supply back, in order to unkink that hose, they have to pump us up. They've got to either hoover us back in or love bomb us again so that that kink comes out of the air hose and they can breathe again. Wow. That's yeah. a great visualization. But again, so, they're in control of that, which is so, that's the whole mind bending thing to it. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we're just, we're just trying to live our lives and be happy, <laughs> find right. someone that, you know, is fun to hang out with or great to be married to. And they come along and just poo poo the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) Destroy the whole thing. They do. They really do. Life could be so easy, you know, it could be, it could Mm -hmm. be, but again, you have to visualize them as the four-year-olds in the toy room. Mm -hmm. They're not older than that. Mm -mm. They're not. Mm -mm. So something that came to mind when I was researching and came across our narcissistic supply, I remember back when we first started learning about all this stuff and main supply came to mind and I didn't really come across that. 
I didn't know if you maybe wanted to add something because that's that's an important concept. It is an important concept and one that so a main supply is a person who the narcissist probably felt the closest to love that they can ever feel. And from that main supply, they got all of the attention, all of the admiration, all of the ability to control and manipulate that they could ever want. They're just the ideal supply. Yes. Ideal. So when that relationship is over, then the narcissist will find someone else usually very, very quickly because they can't be alone because now their air, their air supply is detached from that person. So they've got to find their air somewhere. Or so even they, equate it to like a, a drug addict, um, you know, a lot of time. Well, that's what they refer to drugs and alcohol for addicts is their supply. Yes. And so a heroin addict cannot go without getting another hit of heroin. Mm -hmm. So they have to go find another hit from somewhere. That's a great example. So the addict may give up cigarettes, but then turn to food. So they're still getting that same source of supply, but nothing will ever hit as good as those cigarettes. And I think you called it one time chasing the dragon. Yes. Yep. So when we are a main supply, then you could be out of a relationship with a narcissist for years, but you'll see this pattern of them co constantly coming back to you to get that little hit, to get that little bit of admiration or praise or attention, any any sort of attention whatsoever. So when we are a main supply, then that's an important thing to know and to expect that you will be hit up again for, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right, for yeah. some more attention. And as quickly as they come via text or in person for that little hit, they will move away that quickly again, because remember, they have that other supply, but nothing is as quite as good as that first hit. So nothing will ever be as good as you were to them. But as quickly as they come, they leave just as quickly once they've got what they needed. And so they're very exploitive in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you're counting on them coming back to you to get that little bump from you again, because mm -hmm. you know that you're their main supply, rest assured, just like Lisa said, as quickly as they come, they will leave because they get a source of satisfaction by discarding you again. Yes. There's a huge, such a huge satisfaction that they get from devaluing and discarding and knowing they left you in the dust again. And look, she's just as easy to manipulate as she was before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I still got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a huge ego boost for them. And also it's interesting to think about whether number two did all of this love bombing and hoovering, though it has not been attractive to me. But if he has been doing that, just so I would go back to him, just so he could be the one to do the final discard, right? Because Absolutely. I filed for divorce. I broke it off with him. So that's a wound to his ego. And another illustration that a counselor gave me one time was that narcissists are, are like water balloons and any bruise to their ego creates a little pinprick hole and water starts to escape. And so they look for all of these external things to plug up that hole, to keep them full and intact. So once that, once their balloon has ruptured, they're in panic mode trying to either prevent or stop the leaks. Excellent. Mm -hmm. So now do we want to move on to mirroring? I think, yeah, mirroring. Mm -hmm. We touched on mirroring a little bit earlier when I was talking about the early stages of a relationship and even empathy. 
one of the telltale signs of narcissists is that they lack empathy. But if they appear to be empathetic, it's probably because they're just mirroring back what they've seen you do in, in similar situations. So a narcissist will mirror or reflect what they see in you from your mannerisms. And this can include things like how you dress, how you behave, what your likes and dislikes are. They basically become just like you in order to draw you in. Something that just came to mind that we haven't quite gotten to the, well, we're moving on to the devalue stage after this, but while they do so much mirroring at the beginning in the love bombing part, after they start devaluing you, you become a mirror to them. And if you're not mirroring back to them what they want to see, that all the more makes it where they will devalue, criticize, treat you like caca. <laughs> yes. You know, treat you so badly. It's just amazing. And it's so confusing once it turns and you're supposed to be a mirror for them. And you remember all the great chemical feelings, all the great feelings that you had when they were so into you and were telling you how, no, you're not fat. No, your, your voice is lovely. All the things that you maybe had insecurities about, then all of a sudden your, your appearance isn't right. You know, the way you speak and talk isn't right. Your values are ridiculous and not his or hers, the narcissist. And it's so confusing because it's like, what happened? I thought you loved me the way I was. And they completely throw the way you were back at you as insignificant mm -hmm. and unimportant. Mm -hmm. It's very confusing. Mm -hmm. Because they have done so much research and studied us mm. so well and so deeply, then they use what's important to us against us. Mm. And they know exactly those vulnerable spots, those little kind of open wounds that they can dig in. They, they can because they have us in their clutches. They absolutely yeah. know. Petty mm -hmm. in their hands. Petty That's in their what hands. it is. Yes. Yeah. We are petty in their hands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is the point too, where it just becomes easier to go along to get along. Right. So whereas right. early on in the relationship, we may have felt free and even invited to share our thoughts and opinions on things pretty soon, like that quicksand, we quickly learn it is not safe to share mm. our thoughts, feelings, and opinions with this person. And so we go along to get along. That's right. Because like we said at the beginning, they don't view us as animate objects. They view us as the toy they can rip the wheels off of. We don't have hopes and dreams and needs. Mm -hmm. If we have needs that we express to them that are being unmet, that's turned against us as well, that we're too sensitive or too needy. Mm -hmm. So then that teaches us to not express our needs. That's right. Mm -hmm. And then we start building up resentment, but we have to keep it squashed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we've run out of time to complete our buzzword episode. We will continue our discussion next week. We hope that you will all join us on Here's, Here's Your Red, Red Flag. Flag. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. Here's Your Red Flag was written, directed, and recorded by Tony and Lisa, and edited by Tony. Our theme song is Butterfly Woke by Jairus. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Thanks, y'all.
is written, directed, and recorded by Tony and Lisa, and edited by Tony. Our theme song is Butterfly Woke by Jairus. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Thanks, y'all. You Butterfly Woke, can I die?